This morning, you can have your Bibles handy. We're not going to be in one particular passage specifically today. I'm going to go in a bit of a different direction, and I'll thank you for your indulgence in doing this today. Uh, for some time now, the leadership of the church, Legacy Baptist Church, has felt a direct desire unto a new home for our church, a land, a building, some place to call our own. And uh, it's been a couple of years now since we started feeling the stir. Um, and we've talked about what this might look like, the foundation of our desires. And I want to reference that today. Uh, I'll be speaking more specifically to you all who are in front of me today. I always do that. But um, this is going to be a very um, time-relevant message uh, that will be at least the, 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 the beginning and the end will be, and then in the middle we'll have the, the doctrine which is uh, timeless for us to consider. As we've thought through what it might look like to find a, a permanent home, we've talked through the foundations of our desires and such, and we've thought through several things. We certainly don't want to move where uh, the church is too far from Buffalo uh, so that it fundamentally changes who can and cannot come. And we acknowledge that something like that could happen. And yet we believe, at, the, at least at this time, that, that we ought to stay somewhere within the proximity of Buffalo. Uh, we desire a place where our children can play outside without having to be on concrete and uh, be around a bunch of moving cars. Uh, we've desired not to go into debt. We talked not too long ago on Tuesday evenings about the nature of debt as believers. We recognized in that series, in that teaching, that debt is not inherently wrong. In fact, um, debt factored heavily into the Old Testament law. But we also recognize that debt comes with dangers and with complications. For the individual, this is true. For a family, all the more so, and even more so still, for a corporate body of believers. And this puts Legacy Baptist Church in an interesting and somewhat difficult spot. One of the reasons is because we live in a society that is built on debt, but our congregation has never been big enough to give us vast quantities of monies by which we are able to necessarily get something debt-free. To this end, it is tempting to simply do what our society does, what our society is built to do and to facilitate and take out debt to secure a place uh, that we could desire for our congregation, for our future, and uh, to invest in that way. And it would not be wrong in principle for us to do so as we studied through that series. But it's been the conviction of the church, at least to this point, that that's not necessarily an avenue that we've desired to go. So our church has waited. We've patiently kept our eyes open for opportunities. We've pursued open doors as those open doors have presented themselves and then have closed summarily. And with each one, uh, there's a measure of uh, discouragement or uh, a thought as to what could have been. And we've individually prayed to God for his leading and for his provision. And among the membership... Uh, the desire for something different has not waned. It has, in fact, grown. And as you all are probably familiar in your own lives, as you have walked with the Lord and uh, felt the Lord burden your heart, or, or, or you felt a burden for something and then have begun through the process of desiring whether or not this was the Lord's burden or, or your own selfishness and uh, how to, to determine those things. I, I taught another series on Tuesday night. Uh, it's been some time now, maybe a couple of years, on biblical decision-making. And, and a lot of that would fall more into the realm of biblical decision making than what we're necessarily talking about today. And yet what we've seen is that among the leadership of the church, this, this desire has maintained somewhat steady. And yet the opportunity to fulfill this desire has not yet presented itself within the boundaries that we have set. And this is curious. For those of you that know uh, what it is to walk with the Lord, when you feel as though the Lord has placed something on your heart to do, and yet he has not made provision to do it, that is a unnatural place to be. It's, it's, it's not normal. It's not, there's something, there's, there's something out of sync with that. And it could be several different possibilities. First, it's possible uh, that the will of the body is not aligned with God's will. That what we desire is not what God desires for us. That we are maybe even misinterpreting 
the burden that he's placed upon our heart for something different uh, in, in a manner that, that we, because we um, are, are distracted or whatever it might be, have, have not seen. And so it's possible that that is the case. Perhaps it even is that our, our uh, desire to see things in a certain way, to stay in Buffalo, uh, our desire to um, have uh, a, a particular uh, subset of things. Uh, may, maybe there's a selfish desire there uh, that, that has, has overridden our capacity to receive what the Lord would have for us. It's also possible that there's something in the way. A collective problem. Poor stewardship. Sinful indulgence. Maybe God says, well, you're not being the best steward over what I have given you, so why can I, how should I give you more? How can I give you more? Perhaps there's a stewardship issue or something of that sort. Something that would hinder God's capacity to give us what he wants for us. It's also possible that the manner of our petition has not positioned God to be the one to get all the glory. That if he were to give us what we have desired today, we might be able to place the glory at the feet of some realtor or some uh, other person or some um, capacity of our own rather than that of God, and in doing so would strip God of his rightful glory. The process of seeking and knowing God's will, as I said, is a topic for another day. Maybe we'll bubble up that biblical decision-making series on a Tuesday night or a Sunday school here soon. But the church finds itself in a place where we are seeking the will and the provision of God. We feel a spiritual draw and a desire, but we do not find this spiritual blessing or enablement to bring it about. And again, this is a spiritually unnatural place for a Christian, much less a church, to be in. It's a spiritual desire that is devoid of spiritual enablement. Now, unfortunately, what has characteristically happened in the church in this point is that the church simply says, well, then let's, let's enable it, right? Let's go through the process of, of, of making this happen, fleeing into some measure of society's thoughts or expectations to bring it about. I don't believe that where we find ourselves should compel us to flee to society's solutions in some carnal way to solve the spiritual desire of our heart that we believe might be right, but which we're not finding enablement for. If God laid the desire on our hearts, we should expect that he will bring about the enablement as well in line with the desires that he's placed upon us, or he will change our desires to be in line with what he wants for us. So we are called, rather than to flee to society, to, to uh, pursue the business solutions uh, that might bring about what we're looking for. Instead, I believe it calls us actually to flee deeper into the will of God. Deeper into that spiritual desire. To discern all the more whether or not what we want is what God wants, or if we are somehow standing in the way, or if, uh, how, how it might be that God wants us to position ourselves to receive of him those things that he has placed upon our hearts. Maybe God wants us here, and we just need to be content. Maybe that's why he hasn't given us something else, because he says, no, it's not time to go. Maybe, again, something about us is hindering God's capacity to bless. Maybe God wants to use society systems of borrowing to bring about his purpose, and yet we are unwilling to go that route. And so he can't bring about what we want because we're unwilling to use that system. We have, we have, we have sectioned that off as something we're unwilling to do. And the problem is that none of these things are particularly clear at this point. And that needs to be remedied. So that's why I'm preaching what I'm preaching today. Because the beginning of the process of remedying a situation where there are desires on your heart but there's no way forward is prayer. And as we think about prayer in a corporate sense, that's something we have not done collectively a great deal yet. When I was gone a couple weeks ago, I understand Sam spent some time praying about it. And it's something that we've done a little bit on Tuesday nights, but we've not set in place a time of prayer. But one of the other models that we find in the scriptures as it relates to the idea of asking directly and purposefully is fasting. 
In a sense, the reason why we have not corporately come together to pray about this yet has been for a reason. We've been poking kind of around the edges of our desires. Uh, We've not wanted to ask God for the things that we are not confident or necessarily within the scope of his desires for us. We have not yet necessarily been uh, fully unified on exactly what it looks like to move forward with the amount of money that we have in the bank into something different While simultaneously, of course, we have the natural fears that come with, again, taking out debt and then binding ourselves in a collective manner to such a thing. And, and of course, in the last year, we've seen quite a few more people in the church than we've seen previously, but we've also seen uh, the numbers of this church ebb and flow in a way that makes uh, debt a very uncomfortable uh, proposition, even beyond that which is normal for a church. So we've not, to this point, necessarily been fully confident in the scope of his desire and seeing if the impulses of our collective heart have been motivated by something other than God. We have also, to this point, simply sought for an open door that we might imagine God could open for us, but of course that door has not opened. And that's fine. Using open and closed doors is a wonderful way as a part of discerning God's will, but it is certainly not a a plenary and foolproof way. Sometimes it takes more than that. And so that's what today I want to present to you. It's time to take another step. And that step, when it comes to the Lord's provision, will always be grounded in prayer. Asking God for provision. God is not beyond provision. He is not beyond direction. He doesn't need to accomplish uh, us to accomplish his purposes and yet he chooses to use us and we want to be used but we want him to have the glory to this end uh, the leadership of the church has decided it's time to engage more directly in the process of seeking God for next steps for provision and for direction and again as we talk about the process of seeking God it will include prayer and in this case I also want to present to you the idea of fasting that's what we're going to talk about today because fasting is a concept which is not well used nor is it well understood in the modern church Legacy Baptist Church has collectively fasted twice in the 13 years that we have been in existence. Uh, The first was for a young man who was going in for spinal surgery. He was effectively a paraplegic. And um, the second time was for a child in the womb with a life-threatening medical condition. In both cases, the church uh, collectively fasted and prayed. And in both cases, after that period of fasting and prayer, God worked in medically miraculous ways into results that were beyond either our expectations and certainly the expectations of the medical field. And now it's time, I believe, for our church to do this thing again. And we will do so expecting that God will do his work, either to provide as we petition him or to remove from our collective desire what it is that we have desired. To align our will with his will, which is the objective of prayer. Yes, we pray that we may have those things that we ask of him, but we pray in his will. Well, we don't always know his will. Again, it's not going to be a message on prayer today. I've preached many of those. You can go back and find them online. And yet what we are doing is we are seeking to align our heart with God's heart, our will with God's will. And the Lord, as we pray, he lays those desires on our hearts and he can certainly also take them away. So we will pray. But I'm also desiring that we would fast. So today I want to teach you what fasting is, acquaint us with the practice biblically, and orient our minds to what this looks like in our own day. And we're going to ask a few simple questions today and go to the scriptures as we ought to do to find our answers. The topic of fasting comes up 32 times, in 32 separate contexts within our Bibles. And by comparing those times, we're not going to compare all 32, but by comparing those times one to another, we're able to gain an understanding of the character of fasting, of the purpose of fasting, and of the results of fasting. And so the first question we're going to ask today is, what is fasting? Now, I know that fasting is kind of popular today in the dietary sense. Uh, We're not talking about fasting in the dietary sense, although it will contain that concept. We are talking about a spiritual action, not a dietary action. It contains the idea of not eating, but we're not eating for the sake of diet. We We are not eating 
We are not not eating. I can't use double negative. Um, the reason why we are not eating is not for, is, is, man, now I'm all confused. It's not about diet, right? It's about, it's about the spiritual work that God seeks to do and the spiritual work that we are seeking to do through God. So fasting, it's as much a cultural consideration as it is a biblical one. We actually do not see direct instructions in the scripture about how to and how not to fast. It's never explicitly commanded in scripture in that sense. The Bible seems to take for granted that its readers will, in fact, understand what a fast is. And and, and really, this is quite appropriate because every culture has the nature of fasting in it as it relates to religious worship. In its purest sense, fasting is withholding oneself from food for a period of time. And while the Bible doesn't seem to define it, we do see it exemplified, as I've said many times. We see one instance in 2 Samuel 12. David is fasting concerning the son that was conceived with Bathsheba in their adulterous relationship. This child was sick. And the Bible says in 2 Samuel 12, verses 16 and 17, David therefore besought God for the child, and David fasted. And went in and lay all night upon the earth. And the elders of his house arose and went to him to raise him up from the earth. But he would not, neither did he eat bread with them. So notice here that we see fasting. And fasting is connected directly to the idea of not eating. David was in a period of fasting. He remained on his knees, perhaps on his stomach. He was on his face. And he did not eat. And it also will find uh, that he did not wash himself either in this period of time. Uh, So we read in verses 19 through 23, the other end of this. But when David saw his servant, that his servants whispered, the child dies, right? And then, but when David saw that his, uh, that his servants whispered, David perceived that the child was dead. Therefore, David said unto his servants, is the child dead? And they said, he is dead. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his apparel and came into the house of the Lord and worshiped. Then he came to his own house, and when he required, they set bread before him, and he did eat. Then said his servants unto him, What thing is this that thou hast done? Thou didst fast and weep for the child while it was alive. But when the child was dead, thou didst rise and eat bread. And he said, While the child was yet alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, Who can tell whether God will be gracious to me that the child may live? But now he is dead. Wherefore should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. So notice that David was fasting here, but notice the purpose. His servants were actually a little bit confused here. Fasting, and as we'll see as we continue our study, is connected with mourning. And yet in this case, David's mourning was not the mourning of the loss of the child. Uh, It was the mourning for the life of the child. He was mourning while the child was yet alive and he was fasting and he was seeking unto the Lord unto this purpose that through the fasting he might touch the heart of God and that the Lord might spare the child. Now we know doctrinally, biblically, God could not do that. We know that David was the theocratic representative of Israel and as he who was a representative of Israel uh, who had committed adultery, uh, the, the, the punishment for that was death. We recognize in this case that God did not choose to seek David's life for this but that The justice still must be done. And so it was the child's life who must pay for the sin in this case. But David fasted. And as a part of that, he did not eat. David fasted, seeking unto the Lord that the Lord's heart might be affected. And that fasting was specifically, he did not wash and he did not eat. While there was yet hope that the child might live. When the child had died, there was no longer any need to fast, David said. So he stopped fasting and he ate. We also see the correlation between fasting and eating in the New Testament with our Lord's temptation in the wilderness. Matthew chapter 4, verse 2. The Bible says, When he, that would be Jesus, had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was afterward and hungered. Notice that it takes for granted that we understand that fasting means he is not eating. And he was hungry, naturally, because he had not fasted. I mean, he had not eaten for 40 days and 40 nights. Fasting directly correlated with eating almost in an implicit way. 
And as a general rule, this is how we should understand fasting. We should understand fasting as a withholding of ourselves from food. However, there is some precedent that fasting uh, is not necessarily always about uh, withholding ourselves entirely from eating. We could actually take fasting and we could step one more uh, a layer back in the, the generalized nature of what it is we're doing when we're withholding food from ourselves. And we can see this through the example of Daniel, where he did not withhold himself from all food, but rather he withheld himself from pleasantries and luxuries. In Daniel 10, verses 1 through 3, notice what we read. Daniel writing, In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a thing was revealed unto Daniel, whose name was called Belteshazzar. And the thing was true, but the time appointed was long. And he understood the thing and had understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning three full weeks. I ate no pleasant bread, neither came flesh nor wine in my mouth, neither did I anoint myself at all till three whole weeks were fulfilled. So here, uh, Daniel, understanding the sin of his people, seeking from God more insight into what was going to happen, the length of days, and then, of course, in Daniel 10, we would see uh, God effectively reveal the next 250 years of Israel's history to Daniel. But understanding this, he withheld himself, not from food entirely, but for three weeks he withheld himself from certain luxuries. Pastries, meats, wine, and then from anointing his body with oil for, for three weeks. Now, it would not be a good idea to fast for three weeks straight. Now, we see Jesus fasted for the 40 days, and, and, and that's uh, something somewhat uh, unique. But as a general rule, I would not encourage you to not eat for three weeks. It's uh, not good for the body. However, he said that for these three weeks, he was, he was withholding from himself various pleasantries, pleasant bread, flesh, wine, and he did not anoint himself at all. These would have been luxuries, which Daniel had access to due to his position of authority in the kingdom of Persia. He denied these as a matter of course while he was in this state of mourning for the state of his people, and this, too, we might regard as a type of fast. And so we see that fasting, uh, as a general rule, is implicitly expected that there would be a withholding of food for a period of time. However, we do see that Daniel, in a period of mourning and seeking the Lord for more information on his own, uh, did not choose to completely withhold himself from all food. Uh, not only would three weeks have been too long, but at this point he's a pretty old guy. And maybe that wouldn't have been very healthy for him at, at his particular age. But rather, he withheld from himself pleasantries, pleasant bread, flesh, wine, and anointing himself for those three weeks as he sought unto the Lord. There's one more principle that we also see in the scriptures, and this again is given somewhat implicitly. It's in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians 7. Paul is teaching about the duties of the husband and the wife one to another, one of which is that they would not deny one another physical intimacy. It's a duty in marriage. There is, however, one temporary exception that Paul gives to this command found in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 5. Paul says, Defraud ye not one the other, and he's speaking about physical intimacy here, except it be with consent for a time that ye may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again that Satan tempt you not for your incontinency. So Paul indicates that during a time of fasting and of prayer, it would be right and perhaps expected in the manner in which he's not teaching about fasting, he's simply saying that this is something that, that one would do during fasting, uh, that during a time of fasting, one might withhold not just himself from the bodily desire to eat, but that one might deny various natural needs and desires of the body beyond just food in the context of focusing upon the spiritual. And so when we ask the question, what is fasting? The most basic answer is you withhold from yourself the needs and desires of the physical body for a period of time in order to focus upon the needs of the spiritual. That you are telling God that there is a spiritual need and you are acknowledging to God that that need is higher even than your physical needs. You are positioning your heart and your mind to say that my body has needs, but my spirit has greater needs, and so I'm going to withhold the needs of the body in deference to the needs of the spirit. 
As we'll see, however, this is only an outward manifestation of something bigger. Withholding from oneself physical needs is a means by which we subdue the flesh and allow the focus of our lives to be diverted to that of the spirit. It's a means of exercising the higher part of our nature, the spiritual part, in the same way that we might go on, go, go on a jog or, 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 or some other form of exercise in order to take care of the physical part of our nature. And so we, we ask what is fasting and we answer that, that it is the, the denial of the physical in deference to the spiritual. Most purely, it's the denial of eating. More broadly, it can be the denial of any of the body's natural desires and needs in deference to spiritual desires and needs. Question number two then, why fast? Why is it that we see examples throughout the scripture of people fasting? What motivated people to fast and what was it that they were hoping to accomplish by doing so? Now, once again, you talk to a random person on the street, uh, uh, you talk to the local health guru, or you talk to um, the, um, the, the spiritual but not religious person, we talked about them last week, and they're going to talk about all the physical benefits and the mental benefits and uh, clarity of mind and, and, and all of the things that come with fasting. And it's not to say that those things are not true. It's not to say that there may not be uh, physical benefits, uh, uh, mental benefits uh, to the ideas of fasting as it relates to particularly withholding from yourself um, uh, foods for a time or, or whatever it might be. Um, the church, uh, various denominations have even acknowledged this through the Lenten season uh, prior to uh, resurrection, although um, there's some pagan roots to that as well. But all of that to say, there are not necessarily, uh, there, there are many physical reasons why people might say, yes, fast, but that's not what we're talking about today. That's, that's not what we're talking about when we ask the question, why would we fast? Why was Daniel fasting? Why was David fasting? It wasn't uh, to lose weight. It wasn't to increase their mental capacity, the mental health. Uh, they weren't following some sort of new trend. There's something much deeper going on here, and that's what we're trying to tap into. I'm really not concerned about all of the physiological stuff. That's, that's, that's not what I'm interested in as it relates to the church praying and fasting. I'm interested in the spiritual. And that's what the Bible presents about fasting. As we break down the idea, why fast, the motivations for fasting, uh, we can see several primary considerations. The overarching concept, which undergirds the practice of fasting, is that of fasting being an appeal to God in humble mourning. with a direct purpose of communicating a desire unto the Lord. Now, I use the word mourning here. An expression of humility toward God, wherein we reflect to Him a, a, a grief of spirit or of mind, a desire that He would bring about a circumstance or change our grief. Grief and sorrow, mourning, is not always connected to a bad thing happening to us. Grief is an expression of desire when something is missing or something is gone. I can be a happy person, but still have within my heart a kernel of grief that something is missing or that something is absent. You can have a, maybe, maybe you, you've experienced this before, right? My parents have talked about this, where um, my, my parents get together with my two sisters and they have a lovely day and I give them a call on the phone and I say, how was your day? And, and, and they say, oh, it was wonderful, but we're really sad that you weren't able to be a part of it. And so there was, though they had a wonderful day with, with their, their two daughters, there was a, a, just an inkling of grief that, that their son couldn't be there too, right? And, and that idea is just as much a valid idea of grief as would be the kind of grief that David experienced over uh, his, his son being sick. Maybe not the same category of grief, but grief nonetheless. Uh, grief is an expression of desire for something which is missing or something which is gone, something that, that is out of sorts. It is not always a result of 
of tragic circumstances, but rather the perception that something is not as it should be or something is not as we believe we would desire it to be. And so fasting is uh, generally a recognition of that grief, that something is out of alignment, something is out of sorts, something is not the way it's supposed to be. And maybe that is a tragic thing, right? As an illness or death or whatever it might be. Or perhaps it is not a tragic thing. Maybe it's just, well, kind of like what we're talking about today. There's something out of line. And there's a grief to that. That grief doesn't mean that all the leadership of the church comes in frowning on a Sunday and we can't get anything done and we can't drag ourselves out of bed. That's not, that, that's not the kind of grief we're experiencing. But there is a grief that there's something not quite right. And we all express grief in different ways. Our motivations for doing so are varied. We grieve during situations of hardship. We mourn for guidance when we're unsure about something. We sorrow for those who are absent from us when they're not supposed to be absent from us. Even in times when we are not exhibiting the definitive outward signs of sorrow, there can yet be an inward longing, an emotional grief for something or someone. And this is the idea. When we look at fasting, we see it connected very strongly to this mourning, this humble grief, this humble mourning sort of an idea. We can draw this correlation from the words of Jesus in Matthew 9. Verses 14 and 15, the disciples of John come to Jesus and they ask a question. Why do we and the Pharisees fast oft, but thy disciples fast not? Apparently, the disciples of Jesus were not fasting during the time that Jesus was there. It was not something that they regularly did, as was the tradition of the leaders of Israel to do. Verse 15, And Jesus said unto them, Can the children of the bride chamber mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? Then he says, But the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken from them, and then shall they fast. You see the correlation here between fasting and mourning. The disciples of John question Jesus as to why the disciples don't fast. In Jewish religious culture, fasting was something that happened quite often. But he connects the concept of fasting to that of mourning here. And he states that it would be inappropriate for the disciples to assume a posture of mourning unto God, of, 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 of a reflecting of grief unto the Father for any particular circumstance when in fact the Son is present with them. Now that's not to say that they never experienced sorrow. That's not to say that throughout the course of the time of Jesus' ministry there were never fears or, or, or concerns or dangers. We'll talk in not too long in Mark in our evening service about the fact that uh, Jesus uh, ends up in the house of, of, of Simon Peter because Simon Peter's mother-in-law is sick with a fever. We see numerous times where people are mourning and people are sorrowful, though Jesus Christ is among them. But rather, that an outward expression of sorrow with the intent of touching the heart of God, right? That's what mourning is, or fasting is. Why should a man fast to the Father when the Son is with them? Why should there be an outward expression of mourning, a posture of mourning unto God for any particular circumstance when God himself dwells with them? They need not fast to touch the heart of God because the heart of God dwells among them. However, Jesus said, when I leave, then they'll fast. Now, the mourning of Jesus leaving would be, again, that mourning or that grief of absence. Jesus said, it is good that I depart, for when I depart, I will send the comforter unto you. So it was not that in his departure there was going to be uh, a, a tremendous kind of uh, uh, wailing and gnashing of teeth by which they would no longer be able to function. Much to the contrary, they would have heightened function through the indwelling Holy Spirit after Jesus' departure. And yet, he was no longer with them, which means they would reinitiate the idea of fasting as a means by which to touch the heart of God. So fasting is an outworking of a Spirit of humble mourning unto God. And don't miss that part about it being unto God. Jesus' words reflected general understanding that God's presence among them meant that their appeal to God would be to Jesus himself. And that when he leaves, then the appeals to God would resume in the common manner of man. And the common manner of man by which he appeals to God is through fasting. So we regard fasting as having a direct purpose. 
And that purpose is our expression of humble mourning that would touch the heart of God as it relates to our needs, concerns, some absence in our life, whatever it might be. Now, as we consider this concept all the more, we see throughout scriptures numerous contexts within which this mourning takes place. There could be a mourning over circumstances. This is actually the first and foremost concept that we would think of when we consider mourning. A sorrow or a grief based upon a difficult circumstance that's in our lives within which we find ourselves at any given time. We find an example of this in Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. And it came to pass in the month Kislu, in the 20th year, as I was in Shushan the palace, that Hanani, one of my brethren, came, he and certain men of Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews that had escaped, which were left of the captivity and concerning Jerusalem. And they said unto me, The remnant that are left of the captivity there in the province are in great affliction and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down and the gates thereof are burned with fire. And it came to pass when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned certain days and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. In this case, we find Nehemiah in a state of actual grief and sorrow because of the condition of the city of Jerusalem. He was a cupbearer there in the Medo-Persian Empire But he heard that the walls of Jerusalem had been burned to the ground again. And this unfortunate set of circumstances brought an unbearable sorrow to his heart that he could only relinquish through the state of mourning, prayer, fasting, weeping. It's important to note that along with this mourning over circumstances, the context reveals that this fasting also comprised an appeal to the Lord. Nehemiah, it was not that he was just not eating because he was so sad. That's something that people do, right? that you just get so sad and so overwrought that you just stop eating and then someone has to come and remind you that you have to feed your body. But that's not what was happening here with fasting. Maybe he was doing that too. But the fasting here was connected to a prayer that God would help the city. Little did he know how much God would use him to answer that prayer. The next concept of fasting is mourning over sin. When a man or a group realize their sinfulness before the Lord, and so they afflict their souls. 1 Samuel 7, verses 3 through 6, we see an example of this. And Samuel spake unto all the house of Israel, saying, If you do return unto the Lord with all your hearts, then put away the strange gods and Asheroth from among you, and prepare your hearts unto the Lord, and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. Then the children of Israel did put away Balaam, and Ashtaroth, and serve the Lord only. And Samuel said, Gather all Israel to Mitzpah, and I will pray for you unto the Lord. And they gathered together to Mitzpah, and drew water, and poured it out before the Lord, and fasted on that day, and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the children of Israel in Mitzpah. So Samuel calls the people to repent. They do what they are called to do. They, 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 they cast out their idols, and then they gather together, and they fast before the Lord, acknowledging to him their sin. At this point, their, their fasting is a reflection to the Lord of the mourning that is in their heart, an acknowledgement of their sinful state, seeking to God for mercy and to forgiveness that he might then bring about his, his, what is right for them. We also see this example in Jonah, right? Jonah chapter 3, verses 4 through 9. Jonah enters into the city of Nineveh. The Bible says he went a day's journey and he cried and said, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So the people of Nineveh believed God and proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them even to the least of them. For the word came unto the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne and he laid his robe from him and covered him with sackcloth and sat in ashes and he caused it to be proclaimed and to publish throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste Anything, let them not feed nor drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily unto God. Yea, let them turn everyone from his evil way and from the violence that is in their hands. Who can tell if God will turn and repent and turn away from his fierce anger that we perish not? And indeed God did, but it began with the king saying, not only are we not going to eat, but our animals are not going to eat or drink as a means by which to reflect to God a posture of humble mourning that if perchance he might just show us mercy. 
So fasting can be mourning over circumstances. Fasting can be mourning over sin. Fasting can be mourning for guidance. And it has been apparent throughout the last couple of our examples that the idea of fasting is intended to petition God directly for help. Fasting is a humble and mournful admission of our own inability, our need for God to guide us and to help us through what it is that we are going through. It reflects a deep desire for God's will to be done above our own will. And there are tremendous examples of this guidance within the early church. In Acts 13, verses 1 through 3, the Bible says this, Now therefore, excuse me, now there were in the church that was at Antioch certain prophets and teachers, as Barnabas and Simeon, that is called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Menaean, which had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Ghost said, Separate me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work thereof, excuse me, for the work whereunto I have called them. And when they had fasted and prayed, they laid their hands on them and they sent them away. So here the church is fasting and praying unto God. And in that state of fasting and prayer, God then uh, acknowledges to them to separate Paul and Barnabas, who is called here Saul, and to commission them for the work that he had directed them unto. A very similar thing happens in Acts 14, verses 21 to 23. The Bible says, When they had preached the gospel in that city and had taught many, they returned again to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, confirming the souls of the disciples and exhorting them to continue in the faith, and that we must, through much tribulation, enter into the kingdom of God. And when they had ordained them elders in every church and had prayed with fasting... They, commanded them to, uh, they commended them to the Lord, excuse me, on whom they believed. So here it is with prayers and fasting that they ordain elders and commend these churches unto the Lord for the Lord's wellness and, and, and safekeeping as they continued on their way. Mourning over sin, mourning uh, over circumstances, mourning for guidance. We also see mourning uh, in, in the sense of, of for victory, for, for uh, spiritual victory. We find an interesting account during the life and ministry of Jesus Christ where he commissioned his disciples to go out and to do great works in his name. And the disciples did. They went out and they did great works in Jesus' name. But something went wrong in one particular case. And we read about that case in Matthew 17. Beginning in verse 14, the Bible says this. When they were come to the multitude, there came to him a certain man kneeling down to him and saying, Lord... Have mercy on my son, for he is a lunatic. He is lunatic. And sore vexed. And oft times he falleth into the fire and oft into the water. And I brought him to thy disciples, and they could not cure him. Then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him hither to me. And Jesus rebuked the devil, and he departed out of him, and the child was cured from that very hour. Then came the disciples to Jesus apart and said, Why could we? Why could not we cast him out? And Jesus said unto them, Because of your unbelief, for verily I say unto you, If ye have faith as a grain of mustard seed, ye shall say unto this mountain, Remove hence to yonder place, and it shall be removed, and nothing shall be impossible unto you. How be it, he said, This kind goeth not out but by prayer and fasting. This particular demon... It's not a, we're not in the spiritual warfare series. That's online if you want to go look at that and get a little more insight into this. We will talk about uh, this idea at least partially uh, later on in the book of Mark. So we'll get there at some point. We won't get into all the spiritual implications of this today. But this particular demon, it would seem, was resistant to the disciples. And Christ says here that this one would not go out but by prayer. And fasting. And so there needed to be a heightened form of spiritual urgency in the disciples if they were going to see God do the work that they desired Him to do in this particular case. Now, as we've considered all these examples, we find more to substantiate that which we've already claimed. Fasting is an exercise of the spiritual. It involves subduing, we might say ignoring or starving our flesh for the purpose of focusing our energies upon the spiritual to touch the heart of God. It is an act of humility 
of humble mourning as a means by which to seek from God that which we do not have in ourselves. And as we've read, we find many scriptural examples, both Old Testament and New Testament, of God's heart being touched and of God doing things through prayer and fasting in response to men's pleas, touching the heart of God. And that brings us to question number three. How to fast. Now, we understand in its most basic form, fasting is a time where we withhold ourselves from the needs of the flesh and specifically that of food. But perhaps in today's world, food is not only or perhaps even the best abstinence in order to focus upon the spiritual. Oftentimes, the things which feed our flesh most in any given day today is not necessarily food. As a matter of fact, in this age, it is particularly difficult for many to still their heart and their mind, even so much as to pray. Because we live in this information age where we have this screen in our pockets that's always dinging, always vibrating, always asking for our attention, demanding our attention. And so as we think about the idea practically of how to fast, of denying those things of the flesh, you might actually do well to think significantly more about how you're going to not get on your phone or get on social media or get on television or on the internet than necessarily what you are or aren't going to put into your body as it relates to food. Now, there are many practical considerations as it relates to this. But when I ask the question how to fast, the practical considerations are not foremost on my mind. If you need practical considerations for that thing, there's actually a, 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 a paper on the back shelf there. It's a little half sheet of paper. Some practical considerations for fasting. We'll talk about those a little bit uh, toward the end of our time today. But that's not really my, my focus. My focus in this question is doctrinal, not practical. There are a couple of warnings in Scripture regarding fasting that I'd like for us to think about as we, as we answer this final question. And the first warning is this, that fasting is not spiritual manipulation. God doesn't do things for us just because we don't eat food, right? This is not like a stimulus and response type thing. Oh, God sees someone and yeah, he may not be uh, um, doing anything that he's supposed to do, but he's not eating food. So God's got to answer. No, no, it's not like that. God is not... God cannot be manipulated in this manner. We cannot manipulate God into doing things outside of his will. We cannot manipulate God into doing things against his character just because we don't eat. The idea of fasting is not that I have something I want and I'm going to bend the will of God to what I want. It doesn't work that way. God, I want that new thing. Well, it's not working just to ask, so I'm going to fast for that new thing. And then you've got to give it to me because I fasted. It does not work that way. We are not bending God's will to our will. Fasting bends my will to God's will. Fasting positions me under God to receive of the Lord that which he desires and to petition him that his will, his desires, and his provisions would be made clear to me so that I might align with them and so be blessed. That's fasting. Not eating or withholding some element of the flesh is an outward manifestation of something that is happening inward. It's an inward determination to elevate the spiritual. If your heart is far from God, if your spirit does not assume the position of appeal to God in humble mourning, even if you've withheld from yourself food, God will not be interested in what you're doing. It's not about the physical withholding of food. It is about what that is representing, about what's happening in your spirit at that time. There are examples of this in Scripture, of God rejecting the fasting of His people. Isaiah 58, verses 3 through 6. Wherefore have we fasted, say they, and thou seest not? We fasted, and God hasn't seen it. Wherefore have we afflicted our soul, and thou takest no knowledge? Behold, in the day of your fast ye find pleasure, and exact all your labors. Behold, ye fast for strife, and debate, and to smite with the fist of wickedness. God says, you're fasting for things that, I, that, that you want that I don't want to, to give you. You're fasting in wickedness. You're fasting for wickedness. Ye shall not fast, as ye do this day, to make your voice be heard on high. 
It is such a fast that uh, is it such a fast that I have chosen? A day for a man to afflict his soul? Is it to bow down his head as a bulrush and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Wilt thou call this a fast and an acceptable day of the, to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I have chosen? To loose the bands of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, and to let the oppressed go free, and that ye break every yoke. God says, here's the fast I'm actually looking for. I'm not looking for you to not eat because you're not eating, but your heart is far from me and you think that somehow you're going to manipulate me into getting what you want when you're not doing anything that I've asked of you. God said, here's the fast that I want. The fast that I want is this, loose the bands of wickedness. Undo the heavy burdens. Let the oppressed go free. Break the yoke of burdens. That's the fast I'm looking for. And so, when we ask this question, how do we fast? The first thing is this. Make sure you're right. Make sure your heart is positioned in a place of humble mourning. Don't fast in rebellion. Don't fast thinking you're going to manipulate God. It's not going to work that way. Can't work that way. That's not how fast, that's not what fasting is. Fasting on the outside is only a reflection of what's happening on the inside. If it's not happening on the inside, the outside doesn't matter, Christian. You know that. It's that way in every facet of the Christian life, isn't it? Zechariah 7, verses 5 and 6. Speak unto all the people of the land and to the priests, saying, When ye fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh month, even those 70 years, talk about the 70 years of captivity, did ye at all fast unto me, even unto me? And when ye did eat, and when ye did drink, did ye not eat for yourselves and drink? Uh, when ye did, excuse me, when ye did eat, yes, and when ye did drink, did ye not eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? So he's talking about the fastings, then the feastings, right? And so he says, when you fasted, did you ever fast for me? When you feasted, did you ever feast to me? Was any of it ever for me? And of course, in Zechariah's prophecy, the answer was no, it wasn't. And so it wasn't of interest to God. It didn't touch the heart of God because it wasn't about Him. It needs to be about Him, Christian. So fasting is not spiritual manipulation. You can't just expect God to come outside of Himself because you're not eating something. Second, fasting is not for attention nor is it for praise. Jesus can speak for Himself on this one. Matthew 6, verses 16 to 18. Moreover, when ye fast, be not as the hypocrites of a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces that they may appear unto men to fast. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. They've already gotten their reward because people have looked at them and said, oh, look, they're fasting. They must be really godly people, very pious, and you've already received what, you, what, you've, been, what you've been seeking, right? You've gotten the attention you want. Congratulations. You got what you want out of fasting. But you're not going to get anything from God. Verse 17, but thou when thou fastest, Anoint thine head and wash thy face, that thou mayest appear unto men to fast. Not, excuse me, appear not unto men to fast. Very, very important. But unto thy Father which is in secret, and thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. So the man that seeks the reward of being seen by other men gets that and only that. But the ones whom God rewards are those for whom fasting is a spiritual endeavor, not one for the sake of attention, not to be counted as godly, but rather to touch the heart of God. Now, that doesn't mean, this is, we talk about this as it relates to giving and everything else. We give for the same reason. We give in the same manner. We pray for the same reasons. We pray in the same manner. Does that mean that we cannot pray corporately because we're supposed to go to our closet and pray? No. Not necessarily. It's not about whether or not we're praying corporately or individually, it's about whether or not we're praying to God or praying to be seen of men, right? It's not about whether I'm, I'm giving publicly or privately as much as it is about whether I'm giving to be seen of men or I'm giving unto God. It's not about fasting publicly or privately directly. It's about whether I'm fasting to be seen of men. Now, because of the nature of, of, of because of human nature, there's wisdom. That's why we do a box in the back for giving and we don't pass a plate, it allows for a more personal form of worship through giving. We think that that's very important. It's very, there's a lot of wisdom in that, and it enables you to give more privately as the Lord would desire us to do and, and such. There's a couple of other reasons as well. There's a sheet back there that explains it if any of you are curious. 
That doesn't mean that passing a plate is inherently wrong. A person can give unto the Lord and give for the right reasons just as well through passing a plate or any other form of giving if their heart is right. So it's not necessarily about the physical, but the physical has a means by which to reflect something about the spiritual. And so that's what Jesus teaches here. Fasting is by character a humble endeavor. It is by character a personal uh, endeavor. In this case, we desire, we're going to approach it in a corporate endeavor for the corporate need of the body. So we cannot manipulate God and we cannot seek his favor while also being proud. So then what is fasting? As we summarize, it is a humble appeal to God for his intervention in our lives manifest by denying the needs and desires of the physical body and focusing our energies upon a spiritual purpose. We take the time which we would otherwise give to fleshly pursuits and we devote those pursuits to something spiritual, to prayer. We fast because all throughout Scripture, not only do we find the practice of fasting common among the righteous, but because we see the exercise of fasting and the spiritual power which comes with it. And God's people need that. Fasting is exemplified in the greatest of righteous examples in the Bible. Fasting was done regularly in the early church. Jesus taught on fasting and told his disciples, the disciples of John, that that after he left, his disciples would fast. And so fasting is something which we do in today's church. And we should not ignore, nor should we consider it lightly. It is a spiritual exercise of tremendous importance and benefit. It's a necessary link to the power of God. And to ignore it would be foolishness as it's something that the Bible presents with power. Now, as I've said, the reason why I've taught on this today is because our church has hit this important juncture. We come to the Lord with no direct urgency. We're not being kicked out of this place and we are uh, not in a, in a position where we cannot continue here should the Lord uh, see fit and, and our, our uh, landlord be willing to allow us to stay. But we do come with a need that we have not found the means in ourselves to accomplish. We need God's power and his mercy to overshadow this circumstance. And so it's my request and desire that God's people would come together and seek to touch the heart of God. My request is that next weekend be a weekend of prayer and fasting. For some, perhaps that's a 24-hour fast. For some, perhaps that's a 48-hour fast or, or thereabouts next Saturday and Sunday. Those sheets on the back table, as I said, will give you some practical considerations. You need to consider your health concerns. You need to be sure that you're drinking water. You need to understand your personal limits. Uh, I'm not asking anyone to hurt their bodies. Women, if you're pregnant, don't fast. Uh, at least in the food way, right? If you have special needs for your own health, don't give those up. Perhaps if you cannot fast in the context of food, you can fast in other manners like, De- like Daniel did. Re- remove from yourself certain pleasantries. I would encourage everybody, if you're going to fast, to remove yourselves from the predations of modern technology for that time. And the direction with which I am asking us to fast is for God's peace and God's will and God's direction and God's provision regarding our desire for a place for the church to call home. I don't know what the results of this will be because I'm not interested in dictating those results. Maybe that will be that the collective will of the body will be that we're just very content here. We're just going to stay here. That's what the Lord wants. Maybe the Lord will say, well, you've been only looking around Buffalo and we've got to move you past that. Maybe the Lord will say, well, it's because you're You you don't have enough money, so let's get you the money you need. Don't know. Maybe maybe something will be given to it. Don't know. Not interested in knowing, interested in finding out. If you can do 48 hours, then the desire would be that you'd start Friday night, start after dinner, go through to Sunday evening and then on our Sunday evening service next week, as always, we'll have the Lord's table. And you can break the fast with the Lord's table. 
If you're going to do 24 hours, maybe do Saturday night through Sunday. You can break the fast with the Lord's table Sunday night. Again, if it's not going to be uh, food, some other way, young children, parents, don't, don't have your little kids fasting. Um, no need for that. Fast on something other than just all food for them. Those sorts of things. Again, get a sheet if you'd like with some of those, um, some of those general guidelines. And together, my desire is that we will afflict our souls and appeal, God for his good, appeal to God for his goodness and for his mercy as it relates to these things. And my desire then is that we'll do this one week per quarter. October 1st, it's the beginning of that final quarter of the year. We'll do it again, maybe not January 1st, but around the beginning of the year in January. And we'll do it every quarter until the Lord sees fit to establish our hearts in his will. Until we believe that God has answered our petitions in whatever way he would see fit to answer them. As we seek the Lord to provide for the needs of Legacy Baptist Church. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.